Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Hosea? The book of Hosea, chapter 1. Let's begin with the word of prayer. Father, we've already begun in worship. We've given you our lives, our voices, our thoughts. We've told you how important you are to us, that there's none like you. And now, Father, as we continue to worship you by giving you our attention, as your Spirit speaks truths, age-old truths that apply today to us, we pray, Lord, that our lives would be conformed into your image. That our own thoughts, our own minds, would begin to take on the Bible's thoughts. That we would have the mind of Christ and apply your thinking to our life situations. Lord, we don't want this or any other time that we gather together to study your word to be just another time to study the Bible. We want to be transformed by it, all of us. So we come humbly and we ask your spirit to open up our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in 1936, a radio broadcast from England to the United States was slated to go on WJZ back in New York City. It was an address where the King of England, King Edward VIII at that time, was going to speak to the American public. Just minutes before that broadcast, somebody tripped over a wire in the studio and snapped the only line of communication from England to America. Now, the engineers were frantic. Nobody knew what to do. One smart apprentice knew exactly what to do. He grabbed both ends of the wires and held them in his hand just moments before the time of the broadcast, which went on. But that man stood there holding both wires so that the word of the king literally was transmitted through the body of that person. That's how I'm going to define a prophet. A prophet is somebody who takes the message from heaven, and it's like he's holding on a wire from heaven and a wire to the earth, and God is speaking, and God's message flows through him to the people. The king speaks through that person. Well, we've turned in our Bibles to one of those prophets tonight, the prophet Hosea. We're going to start a study on the minor prophets in the major leagues. We'll talk about why they're called minor prophets and their importance for our lives today. Now, some of the prophets, their ministry was through proclamation. That is, they spoke God's message for the people of that particular time. They dealt with issues of that time. Some of them were patriotic. Some of their messages were denunciatory. You'll read the word woe quite a bit in the prophets. God was denouncing their sin. Sometimes the prophet's message was conciliatory. It was encouraging. God's going to do something great. 
So sometimes the, the, the prophet gave his message by proclamation. Other times the prophet's messages were prediction. They were speaking of something that had not happened but would happen in the future. Sometimes it was in the near future. Sometimes it was in the far off future all the way to the end of the age. And then sometimes the prophets, not with proclamation, not with prediction, but they gave their message by demonstration. They acted out in front of a group of people what God wanted to get their attention with. For instance, Ezekiel sketched out the model of Jerusalem on a little plate. And everybody looked at this guy. What's he doing? He's drawing something. What's he drawing? He drew Jerusalem. And then he built little siege mounds around it and attacked it. Like a kid playing with toys. And when they said, well, what are you doing? He said, that's what the Babylonians are going to do. Or there was Jeremiah who put a, a yoke that would typically go on an animal and put it around his shoulders and walked around town with his huge wooden yoke. Because he was speaking of the slavery that would come to the people of Jerusalem later on. Isaiah says that he walked naked and barefoot for three years proclaiming a message. So that guy was like the streaking prophet. (laughs) He got people's attention. And his messages were sometimes denouncing, sometimes very encouraging. Now we come to a guy named Hosea. And Hosea was also very demonstrative. Oh, he'll speak words. Oh, he will denounce. Oh, he will comfort. But he's going to, through his life, demonstrate something very powerful. Hosea is going to feel something that God feels as God calls him to do something very, very difficult. The minor prophets. They're not minor because they're not important. They're minor because they're just not as long. So it has nothing to do with importance. It has to do with brevity. And some of the prophets were contemporaries with some of the bigger name prophets. For instance, Hosea lived and preached at the same time Isaiah did and the same time Micah did. Although their messages were for the southern two tribes, Hosea's message was for the northern ten tribes. Now, in some of this history that you might have questions about. I'll try to explain as much background as I can uh, throughout the next several weeks. So if you go through something and you didn't quite get it or understand it, you will as time goes on, or simply come up afterwards and ask a question about it. Now the prophets could be divided into three classes. Let's make it easy. Some of them spoke before they were taken captive into Babylon. Some of them gave their message during the Babylonian captivity. And still others gave their message after they returned. So you could divide them into pre-exilic, before the exile, exilic, during the exile, and post-exilic, after they came back from the exile. All of the prophets in the Old Testament will fall into one of those categories, pre-exilic or post-exilic, or during the exile. Verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Now, the word Hosea is similar to the word Jesus. Hosea. It's like 
Yeshua or Joshua. It's the same root word as Joshua, the successor of Moses. It's the same root word as Yeshua or Jesus. The name means deliverance or salvation. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. You see the reference to Israel at the end of verse 1? It's not what you typically think of. When we think of Israel today, we think of the whole nation. But when Hosea uses the term, he is very specific about an area, and he will make a difference in the entire book about an area that is north versus Judah, the area that is south. Now, how many tribes altogether were there in Israel? Twelve. And all of those 12 tribes at one time were united together under one kingdom called the United Monarchy. And there were three kings that governed during that time. The first was King Saul, the second was David, the third was Solomon. For 120 years, there was a united monarchy, a united front where all of those tribes were by and large together. Solomon did probably the greatest amount of physical good for the nation. He expanded their borders. He brought in a navy. He brought in a merchant marine. And he made the the nation of Israel solid. But in 930 B.C. he died. And when he died, the nation that was already starting to go down really went down fast. And this is what happened. The guy that should take over for Solomon was his son by the name of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was young, inexperienced, and very arrogant. Well, the people knew that King Solomon had taxed them too much. It was oppressive. And so they they begged Rehoboam, please, don't do what your dad did. Give us a break. Ease up a little bit. When Rehoboam consulted with the older guys... They said, the people are right. Do what they say. Your dad was very oppressive. But when he went with his younger, inexperienced gang, they said, don't listen to those old guys. What do they know? They ought to get out of the way anyway. So you go back and you get rough with them. You put your foot down and tell them you're the boss. So he did. And this is what he said. Hey, my father may have scourged you with whips. I'm going to beat you with scorpions. He didn't win the people's hearts. He says, my little finger is going to be thicker than my father's waist. In other words, if you thought it was bad under Solomon, my dad, what do you see what I do? Get back in line. When that happened, the nation divided. Ten northern tribes, two southern tribes. Israel is the north, Judah is the south. So when we read that in this book, we're dealing with two separate areas of a now divided country. Did you notice in verse 1 that Hosea, though he's speaking to the north, that's his message, he's going to be giving this message to the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, not the two southern tribes. And here's why. There's already guys down south doing the job. Isaiah's doing that while he's doing this. Micah's doing that while he's doing this. So he is up in the north giving this message to the ten tribes. But what's interesting is in verse 1, he is dating the words of his prophecy to the north 
by giving us the names of four kings of Judah. Why? Why would he bother? Oh, he gives one of the names of the kings of Israel in the north, but he names four kings in Judah. And here's why. Because even this prophet up north in Israel knew that all of God's plan and all of God's promises had to do with the lineage of King David and the throne of King David, which was down south in Jerusalem. So this prophet, being a prophet of God, knows that. And he's dating it by what God is doing down in the south, even though they're divided. And it says at the end of verse 1, And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. Okay, if I haven't made things complicated yet, I will right now. You see the word Jeroboam, the name Jeroboam? That's a different Jeroboam than the Jeroboam I just told you about. The Jeroboam I just told you about goes way back to the days of Rehoboam and the kingdom split. North went to Jeroboam. South went to Rehoboam. This guy is Jeroboam II. This is years later. Okay, what's going on during that time? He mentions these kings. These are the rulers in Israel and Judah. What's going on? Well, there's a lot of things going on, but I'm going to sum it up by what Charles Dickens described 18th century Europe to be like. He said, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And I would say that sums up what's going on in this nation at that time. It was the best of times outwardly. It was the worst of times inwardly, spiritually. Outwardly, they were prospering. They had homeland security intact. They had the economy on the upswing. All of that was outward. Below the veneer, underneath the surface, there was moral degradation. There was spiritual bankruptcy and apostasy. And so God raises up prophets, spokespeople. Hosea in the north, Isaiah in the south. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry. Or, go marry a prostitute. And the children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer. That's a weird name for a woman, isn't it? If you grew up in the era I grew up with, you think of one name when you hear that. <laughs> Golly! Right? Gomer Pyle. So now I ruined it for you. Go marry Gomer. Gomer, this woman who was a prostitute. And she went and took Gomer, the daughter of Debliam. She conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, or scatter. That's what it means. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Hosea, God would say, I want you to do something very, very difficult. But it's going to be symbolic. You're going to act something out. In fact, this is like a pageant. This is a pageant of rejected love. Hosea, you play the part of God. And your wife that you're going to marry, Gomer, she's going to play the part of Israel. 
And you marry this girl and she's going to go out on you and your heart's going to break. And that's how my heart feels every time Israel continues to do what Israel does. You are going to know what it feels like, in a sense, to be me. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians? He uttered a prayer that I wonder if we all understand the depth of the prayer. He said, Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformed even to his death. Oh, we all want a fellowship with God when it comes to that joyous, resurrected fellowship, joy, victory, conquering. But when was the last time he said, Lord, if my heart needs to be broken so I feel some of the things you feel, then I want a fellowship with you there. I want to know you in the fellowship of your sufferings. Well, this prophet Hosea was given that wonderful privilege of for a moment feeling what it was like to be brokenhearted. And it was over the wife that he was to marry and she left him. Now, I want to say something about this verse because I read about it and I thought you ought to know about it. Some people do not believe the story of Hosea to be literal. Some believe it has to be an allegory because God would never, ever ask somebody to go through this kind of suffering. And interestingly, one of the guys who said that was John Calvin. And he symbolized it. He spiritualized it. And I've had some interesting discussions over the years with staunch, hardline Calvinists. And so I find it interesting that Calvin was willing to spiritualize the entire story of Hosea because he thought God would never call somebody to suffer like that. Well, it's a shallow theology, I feel, if you think God owes you all smiles in life and never something deeper, something like this. You see, we follow Jesus Christ. He happens to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I'll tell you why I think this book is very helpful. And I take it very literally. Because you might be going through some very difficult times right now. In fact, you might be going through a difficult time in your own marriage. And you're tempted to leave. And you're thinking, it's too much. I'm getting out. I'm going to bail. God certainly wouldn't expect me to suffer this much in this situation. Keep reading this book. Keep holding on to the things that Hosea learned and the faithfulness of God during this. God told them in advance what was going on. Verse 4, they had their first child. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Verse 5, it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, doesn't Israel sound a lot like Jezreel? Israel, Jezreel. Jezreel, Israel. And I'm doing that because in the original language, the spelling is almost identical and phonetically, they're almost identical. This is a play on phonetics, a play on sounds. God is saying, I'm going to take Israel and I'm going to Yisrael, scatter them. I'm going to take this covenant people. I want them to learn a lesson because I love them so much that I'm going to scatter them. And the scattering came in 722 B.C. 
when the Assyrians came down and took the northern kingdom, not the southern, Judah will last for another 136 years, took the northern kingdom captive. God's going to scatter them, take them into captivity. Notice again verse 4. Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So you read that and you think, well, what is that all about? What is the bloodshed issue? It's as if God says, I noticed that a lot of blood has been shed and I'm going to require it and do something about it. Well, if you go back in history, there was a king who was particularly interested in a vineyard that happened to be in the valley of Jezreel. The king was Ahab. The vineyard was owned by a guy named Naboth. And Ahab was married to a really wicked gal by the name of Jezebel. Ahab really wanted that piece of land. And so he offered to buy it from Naboth. Hard cash. Naboth said, thanks, king, but no thanks. This belongs to my family. I'm holding on to it. The king goes home and starts pouting like a little kid. I can't believe it. I want that land. I can't get it. And his wife looked at this pitiful man and said, what are you weeping about? You're the king. You can do anything you want. Kill him. Take it. You're in charge of the whole country. So he did. When he shed that blood in Jezreel, a prophecy was given that God would require the blood of both Ahab and Jezebel. And what happened is interesting. King Ahab was fighting a battle against the Syrians one day, and he called for his buddy, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. He said, hey, I need help. Come to battle with me. But here's the deal. You dress up like me. In this battle, you dress up like you're the king and you go out and, and you be the decoy. And Joseph said, oh, okay. <laughs> and he went out and he was chased by these Syrians and they thought he was the king of Israel, but it was the king of Judah. When they discovered that, they stopped chasing him. But over in the corner is King Ahab hiding. And the Bible says... An arrow was shot randomly. And it flew in the air and just happened to strike between the folds of his armor into his body. And it killed him. So there he was slumped over in the chariot and the blood was draining to the bottom. And he died. His wife, after the battle, Jezebel, fled to the city of Jezreel. And as she's in Jezreel, a guy named Jehu comes by. Now, all of this is kind of alluded to in this verse. Jehu comes into the city and looks up in the window where he sees Jezebel and says to a few guys who are up there, Hey, throw her down. And they threw her down and she died instantly and her blood splattered on the wall and on some of the horses. So she's dead. Now, Ahab's dead and Jezebel's dead. Good riddance. Bad blood is out of the country. But Jehu doesn't stop there. Later on, he goes to Jezreel, the city where 70 sons of Ahab are hiding out. And he sends a letter and he says, okay, I'm Jehu. 
I'm taking over and I'm going to come in and kill you guys. So get your best man and let's fight. I'm just giving you a fair warning. They sent a letter out and said, Hey, what do you want? We'll do whatever you want. So I'll tell you what you, what you do. If you don't want me to attack you, give me the heads of the 70 sons of Ahab in baskets. They said, deal. Because they didn't want any of them reigning over them. Cut off their heads, put them in baskets, shipped them out to Jehu. He took and piled them in front of the gate of Jezreel. So all the people the next day would know this guy means business. So all of this bloodshed from King Ahab to Jezebel and now Jehu, all of this bloodshed in this lineage... God says, I remember that, and I'm going to require it, and I'm going to scatter Jezreel to the wind, this northern kingdom that has fallen away from me. By the way, King Jeroboam II, which was the king that was taken captive by the Assyrians in 722, was of the lineage of Jehu. So all of that is kept in the memory banks of God's divine mind, and he is now scattering this entire northern kingdom to the wind. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. God said, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Lo-Ruhamah means no mercy, or better yet, unpitied by a father. Unpitied by a father. Unmerciful. Yet, I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor battle, by horses or horsemen. Just notice the little word yet because you're going to come up in a few verses to the same word again. It's like, okay, this is what I'm going to do, but yet, and then God will go on, this is what I'm going to do, Yet, so there's this little respite, this little glimmer of hope in the word yet. I'm going to judge the northern kingdom, yet I'm going to have mercy on the southern kingdom. And God did. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was taken away captive. God was merciful to the southern kingdom, Judah. They were doing the same things that Israel was doing, but he was merciful to them for 136 more years. Until 586 B.C. when the Babylonians took them captive. So God is saying, I've had enough of the ten northern tribes. They're toast. I'm going to be merciful on the two southern tribes. You know why? Let me tell you what's happening down in Judah. Okay, here's the ten and the two. This is Israel and Judah. The big superpower, the big guns in the world, are the Assyrians. The Assyrians are coming in to take over everything and everyone. They're successful with the north. The ten other northern tribes are taken away captive. However, when the king, Sennacherib of the Assyrians, comes into Jerusalem, he demands their surrender. King Hezekiah, mentioned in verse 1, was the king at the time. He sees the Assyrians and goes, oh no, We're, it's over. Forget it. We're dead. He knows what has happened up in Israel. And he knows that all of Judah, except for Jerusalem, has basically fallen to the Assyrians. So they're the last stronghold. To make matters worse, 
Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, gets his general, called the Rab Shaka, to read a letter to all of the Jews sitting up on the wall of Jerusalem. And to make it even worse, he knows Hebrew, so he tells it to them in their mother tongue. Says something to the effect of, hey, whatever you do, don't trust in this God of Israel that you trust in. Don't deceive yourselves thinking that your God is going to deliver you from my hand. He goes, look around. What God of any other nation has withstood my fury and my wrath? So I'm taken over. King Hezekiah takes the letter, goes into the temple. Now get this. This is the best part. And spreads it out before the Lord. And in a beautiful prayer says, look, God, you read this letter. You know what's in it. You know we're powerless against this superpower. You know that there's no way we can defend ourselves unless you do something miraculous. He leaves the temple, and as he comes out of the temple, he's met by another prophet, Isaiah. Puts his arm on Hezekiah's shoulder and says, Hez, don't worry. Because you took this to God in prayer, God is going to deliver you from the wrath of the Assyrians. Well, this is what happened. As the Assyrians are gathered together against Jerusalem, Sennacherib, the king, hears about a battle not going so well on another front over in Lachish. He pulls his troops up, takes care of the battle in Lachish, so there's a reprieve. But later on, in 701, he comes back with more troops. Now Hezekiah is looking out at those huge, vast numbers of Assyrian troops, thinking back to the letter, thinking back to the prayer, wondering what God's going to do. Isaiah chapter 37 tells us exactly what God does. It says, In one night, an angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians so that when everybody woke up in the morning, there were 185,000 corpses on the ground scattered around the city of Jerusalem. That's good work. That's effective work. And by the way, that's one angel. Now you understand when Jesus said to the uh, soldiers who were gathering him up in the Garden of Gethsemane and to Peter who thought he was going to defend Jesus, put your sword away. Don't you know that I could send for 12 legions of angels? I could get hundreds of thousands of them if I wanted to. Imagine what if one angel can knock off 185,000. Imagine what legions could do. So God was merciful to the southern kingdom. But the northern kingdom was taken captive. Now, when she had weaned Lo-Ruama, that's two to three years later, that's how long it took them to wean their children, she conceived and bore a son. And God said, call his name Lo-Ami, which means not my people, or not mine. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Hmm. These are tough names if you're a kid. What's your name? Oh, I'm scattered. And this is my sister, unmerciful, unpitied by dad. Oh, then I got this guy over here. Not mine. Well, I don't know if Hosea thought, do I really have to name him that? But he did. Now, you know, perhaps 
every father. You know, there's a react when a baby is born, mothers and fathers react differently. A mom will see this red, mucus-laden, slimy little creature and go, oh, it's beautiful. And dad will often look and go, it's not mine. (laughs) So maybe there was a temptation as Hosea looked at his own son. Yeah, that's right. That's not mine. (laughs) But again, here's a pageant. It's a pageant of rejected love. God is using him as an object lesson to teach the children of Israel. So God says, call him not mine or not my people, which brings up a question. How can that be? How can God say, I'm going to disown Israel? Especially since we compare that to Romans chapter 11, which asks the question, has God cast away his people? What's the answer? God forbid, Paul says. God has certainly not cast away his people. So here God says, I'm casting away my... These aren't even my people. It's over. Yet Paul says, i got to tell you something. God has never and will never cast away his people. So you might ask yourself, and I hope you do, do we have a contradiction in the Bible? I'm glad you asked. We have no contradiction whatsoever. Now, this is important, especially if you speak to people, as we mentioned John Calvin a little while ago, and some from the Reformed line of thinking and Calvinism, and amillennial thinking, if you've come in contact with people who have touted those terms. They make a sharp division. Now, let me take that back. They blur the line. Between the sharp division of God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church, they'll say God cast away his people. He even said so right here. And so all of the promises God made to Israel in the past will now be fulfilled in spiritual Israel, the church. They don't make the sharp division between the wife of Jehovah that is unfaithful and the bride of Christ, the virgin bride of Christ, the church. And that's a mistake. So how do we resolve the problem when God says, I'm casting them away, and then God says in Hebrews or in Romans 11, I'll never cast them away. Here's how. It's called the covenant. You know what a covenant is. It's a deal. It's a pact. We talk about the old covenant and the new covenant, but there are more than just two. God made a covenant with Abraham, and God made another covenant with Moses, and God made another covenant with King David. And all of these are very particular in how God lays them out. Some of these deals, covenants, are what we call unconditional covenant. God just says, I'm going to do it. has nothing to do with what you do. It's just something I'm going to do. It's based on my power, my ability, who I am. That's an unconditional covenant. Other covenants are conditional. You do your part, and then I'll do my part. If you don't do your part, then I'll do something different. That's a conditional covenant. Okay. God made with Abraham... An unconditional covenant, which is this. Abraham, I'm giving you and your progeny, your posterity, your descendants, I'm giving you a land, the land of Israel. It's mine. I'm giving it to you. You and your descendants forever. Unconditional. It's what I'm going to do. No conditions at all. This is my word. However... We come to Moses and the Ten Commandments and the whole law of Moses. We discover that's conditional. 
We read things like Deuteronomy 28, and God says, if you obey me, I'll keep you in the land. If you disobey me, I'll kick you out of the land. So you start wondering again, is God schizophrenic? No, this is perfect. This is what God is saying. The gift of the land we call Israel today is an unconditional covenant to the sons of Abraham, the Jews, forever. Period. God's going to do it. However, their tenure in the land is conditional. Can I explain? You obey, you stay in the land. You disobey, I'm taking you out of the land. But I'll bring you back. Because when I kick you out of the land, you're going to be so disgusted in that foreign land with all those idolaters, you're going to cry uncle. You're going to say, I quit. I won't rebel. Bring me back. And God says, okay, when you do that, then I'll bring you back. So God, in the conditional covenant, said, I'm kicking you out, but I know you're going to cry mercy, and I'll bring you back. So we have an unconditional covenant, but a conditional covenant where their stay or tenure in the land is conditional, but God always brings them back. And so Romans 11 and Hosea fit perfectly. I'm casting you away temporarily, but I will bring you back permanently. Now, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. You see that second yet in that verse? You see what God does? I'm going to do this. Yet? Yet? So here's another glimmer of hope. Just when you think, oh man, this is heavy. All is lost. The hero rides in with good news. Somebody once said, big doors swing on small hinges. And a huge door of hope is swinging open on the hinges of God's little promises in these verses. It changes everything. Yet, in the place where it was said, you're not my people. It will be said, you are sons of the living God. Now, I'm bringing these words to your attention because the Bible happens to be full of them. And look for them. Look for those little contractions, the buts, the yets. It changes the face of everything. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this age, according to the prince of the power of the air, you conducted yourselves in the lust of the flesh, but God, who is rich in mercy, wherein the great love in which he loved us, and the whole door opens and changes. He says, you were condemned, you were dead on arrival, you were toast, there's no hope, but... God changed it. Here's another one, Romans. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, even though a good man, someone might dare to die, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So these two little words form one of the most eloquent transitions in all of salvation history. In fact, that's your testimony. You have a but God in your life. 
You might say, yeah, I was a drug user, but God. Oh, my life was falling apart. I was way down at the bottom, but God did something. Yet, but all of those are important to anyone who's on the receiving end of God's mercy. Now notice in verse 10, as we work our way down to the end of the chapter and on into chapter 2, verse 1, there's five great blessings that are promised to Israel. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. So that's the first promise, national increase. Your numbers are going up, God would say. There's going to be a lot more of you. You're going to increase in population base. And it will come to pass in the place that it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Now that speaks of national conversion. Verse 11, The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. Now that speaks of national reunion. Pause. Pause the tape player for a minute. I don't mean literally up there, but in your minds. National reunion. When Hosea is speaking this, how many, how many uh, countries are there in that land of Canaan? There's two. Israel and Judah, north and south. They're divided. They were divided ever since Solomon died, and there was the split in the kingdom between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They had been divided for year after year after year. Now God says, I'm going to join you back. You may remember back in Ezekiel chapter 37. God says, Ezekiel, take two sticks and write on one Israel and the other write on children of Judah. Now they're separate sticks. These represent two separate nations. And now bring them together as if they're one. They're two separate entities, but now put them all in the same hand and grab a hold of them so it's one stick. Patch them together. That's what I'm going to do with this divided kingdom. I know they're split now, but I'm going to bring them back. It's the same idea here. They're divided. I'll reunite them. Now, the Mormon church has looked at Ezekiel chapter 37 and said, uh, this shows that there is the uh, Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the Book of Mormon. There's, there's something else, these two sticks, and they make a whole thing of Joseph Smith being the Joseph that is written about in the text. And it's, it's, it's humorous to see how people manage to make it try to fit together. It was never intended to mean that or fit together. It means exactly what it says. The kingdom of Israel is divided into north and south, and I'll eventually bring them together. And he did. Here's how he did it. The Assyrians took the ten northern tribes away captive. So you have ten tribes. Some call them the ten lost tribes. Never refer to them as that because they're not lost, and here's why. Eventually, Babylon, 136 years later, took Judah captive and the rest of the world captive so that the ten tribes that were once part of Assyria are now part of Babylon, so all of them are together again. So when they come back to the land, it's not just Judah, but it's all of Israel is reckoned in that second captivity. Okay, so God says he's going to bring them back together. There'll be a national increase in population. There's going to be a national conversion. There's going to be a national reunion. 
Verse 11, Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. I just read that. Uh, for themselves And appoint for themselves one head, that's national leadership, and they shall come out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now that ends chapter 1, and that's unfortunate that your Bibles end there because the end of chapter 1 is the first verse of chapter 2. Now before you go, how can you tamper with the Word of God? I'm not. In the original documents, there weren't any chapters or numbers of verses. They were added years later. And sometimes they did a good job, and sometimes they didn't. This happens to be trailing in the same thought as the previous verses. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. That's national restoration. And now there's a division of thought between verse 1 of chapter 2 and verse 2. So, all of these promises are the hinges that open that huge door of hope for Israel, who's downtrodden in captivity. And God's going to bring them back. Great will be the day of Jezreel, it says in verse 11. After years of scattering, after years of captivity, after years of persecution and heartache, God is saying, all is not lost. I've got a plan. When will this prophecy ultimately be fulfilled? When will it be said, great is the day of Jezreel, and there's a national restoration and a national conversion, and there's one head, one solid king. When will that take place? Well, Jezreel has another name in the Bible. The Valley of Jezreel was later on renamed to the Valley of Har-Megiddon, the Valley of Armageddon. Because there's a little hill and there's a town called Megiddo that sits on it, controls the passageways of this whole area. Jezreel and Armageddon are synonyms, the same valley. The Bible tells us that nations of the world will gather together against the Jews, but ultimately against Christ in the valley of Jezreel, in the valley of Armageddon. They'll be gathered together on their march southward toward Jerusalem. When they start marching south toward Jerusalem in a unified flank, the Bible says that Jesus Christ will come back from heaven. His foot will touch the Mount of Olives. It'll split from east to west. Half will go to the north. Half will go to the south. And Christ, in his second coming, will consume all of the enemies that were attacking the Jews at that time and coming against God and against his Christ then there will be an ultimate conversion and restoration in the kingdom age that will begin at that time. And it will be said, great is the day of Jezreel. And Jesus Christ, their Messiah, will say, Ami, my people. They have become my people. So, you know, I had planned to go through three chapters tonight, but we're going to end with one just to keep the continuity. But it's just great stuff. God is never without a plan. And even if people fail the covenant, even if people disobey and they get booted out of the land and think, all is lost, God says, oh, you haven't a clue. 
I made you a promise way back then that I'd never leave or forsake you. And I told you that I'd bring you back. And he tells them again. Now, all of this is pre-captive, pre-exilic. So the promises then were yet to be fulfilled. Some have already been fulfilled. Some of them await ultimate fulfillment when the one king, the one Lord comes back. So I'll try to pick it up at a more of a pace next week, hopefully get through more chapters. But let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the promises that you have made throughout the entire Bible. You said that all of these things were written. All of them were written for our admonition. And these things, these events, these people have become examples to us. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to keep your promises. We thank you that we who were once not your people, because of the work the finished work of one ruler, one leader, one man, Jesus Christ, you could say to us, you are my sons and daughters of the living God. Thank you for your grace poured out on us. Lord, we think tonight of marriages where divorce is being contemplated. Separation has already been enacted. And all sorts of rationale because of the pain has come to the surface. And Lord, since you are a God of restoration in relationship, you know what it's like to suffer that pain. Father, we pray that you would do a great work in relationships in this body. And give to those present the stamina and the commitment to obey as Hosea obeyed with persistent love, a love that would go after, a love that would chase down, a love that would restore. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.